This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools, and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Of all the time-honored Christmas traditions, there's one in particular that seems to have been lost to history. The ghost story. It seems strange now to consider, but all the way up to the early 20th century, telling ghost stories around a crackling fireplace was a very popular thing to do on Christmas Eve. Stories and Christmas are two things that used to go together like peanut butter and jelly. The holiday that we think of as Christmas actually has its roots in the pagan winter solstice celebration known as Yule. This was a time when many believed the veil between the living and the dead was especially thin, and the spirits would sometimes show up to visit their loved ones. Once you got the wine and the Christmas spirit flowing, there were bound to be people with some stories to tell. It turns out stories are a lot easier and cheaper to give to other people than physical gifts. And it just so happened that with everyone already in a rather spiritual mood, that a lot of the stories people told were designed to scare the pants off you. All the fun came to a temporary end during the 17th century when Oliver Cromwell, the Puritan lord and protector of England, decided to cleanse England of all the decadence he saw around him. This included a lot of the festive trappings surrounding Christmas. But by the 1800s, Puritanism was on the way out and England began seeing a resurgence in Christmas traditions, including several new ones like decorating Christmas trees, which was a carryover from German tradition. This newfound interest in all things Christmas meant England was primed and ready for the publication of a new novella that would soon take the holiday by storm. On December 19, 1843, Charles Dickens published his most famous story, A Christmas Carol. The tale of Ebenezer Scrooge and his visit from a collection of ghosts who change his outlook on life is without a doubt the most popular Christmas story ever written this side of the Bible. After Dickens' story was published, many other authors like M.R. James and Algernon Blackwood followed in his footsteps publishing their own Christmas ghost stories. Once again, it became fun to tell stories on Christmas Eve. You've probably heard the classic Christmas song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. I'll give you all a Christmas gift by not singing it to you right now. But you may recall that the song contains a line that talks about telling scary ghost stories of Christmases long, long ago. Well, that's what they were referring to. But as they say, all good things must come to an end, and eventually telling spooky stories would become something more closely associated with Halloween. Christmas traditions would evolve to make things more wholesome for the public. 
but as a fan of both history and storytelling, I think it's high time we bring some of these traditions back and to dispel some of the myths of Christmas. If you're listening to this episode on the day of its release, then it's Christmas Eve. And since it's Christmas, I wanted to do something a little different and give to you this collection of eight stories, all with a Christmas theme. And so, without further ado, I'm Nate Hale, and it's time to pour yourself a brandy and roast some chestnuts over an open fire. Because this is The Christmas Conspirators. Part 1. The Red Light On September 12, 1962, President John F. Kennedy stood before a massive crowd at Rice Stadium in Houston, Texas, and proudly gave a speech in support of the Apollo program to land a man on the moon. President Kennedy wouldn't live to see his dream become reality. But it was this inspirational speech that helped spur on the nation to accelerate the American space program and eventually allow us to set foot on our closest celestial neighbor. But with any major endeavor, there are always going to be some setbacks. In early December 1965, Gemini 6 was launched into orbit containing astronauts Walter M. Wally Shira Jr. and Thomas P. Stafford. Their mission was to rendezvous with its sister capsule, Gemini 7, that had been launched a few days earlier. This was supposed to be a historic moment for the space program, the first time that Mission Control was able to demonstrate the successful linking of two vehicles in space. The maneuver required a combination of exacting skill from the pilot, as well as a successful test of the onboard computer, and it all went off without a hitch. That is, until the ride home. Just before Stafford and Shearer were scheduled to re-enter Earth's atmosphere on December 16th, the pair of astronauts radioed into Mission Control with some disturbing news. They had spotted something strange outside the capsule. Something that was flying around on its own that they couldn't readily explain. In other words, a UFO. This was, of course, the last thing anyone back on Earth wanted to hear. Pilots that reported UFOs were often ridiculed, and sometimes even grounded for good. Now, here were two of NASA's chief astronauts both reporting they were seeing things. These were the guys who were supposed to have the right stuff, and were never, ever expected to see strange things in space, or at the very least, weren't supposed to talk about them. This is what Thomas Stafford radioed down to Mission Control. We have an object. Looks like a satellite going from north to south, probably in polar orbit. Looks like he might be going to re-enter soon. You just might let me pick up that thing. I see a command module and eight smaller modules in front. The pilot of the command module is wearing a red suit. It was at that point that Mission Control heard something else that they hadn't been expecting come crackling over the radio. 
A roaring chorus of jingle bells performed on the harmonica and sleigh bells that the two astronauts had snuck on board the capsule. Part 2. The Christmas Card It was an elegant card. Black and gold with a color photograph of an 18th century Neapolitan creche that had been on display in the East Room of the White House. The First Lady had ordered the custom-made card from Hallmark herself. She was known for her impeccable taste, and a lot of people who saw the card had complimented her on it. On the inside, the card bore the image of the presidential seal, the famous American eagle with an olive branch in one talon and arrows in the other. The message read, With our wishes for a blessed Christmas and a happy new year. Receiving a presidential Christmas card was considered a prestigious thing. It usually meant you were either a wealthy donor or some other major political figure. This card in particular was unusual in that it was never mailed, though. The president and his wife managed to sign about 75 of the cards in the early part of November, figuring they had plenty of time to sign the rest at their leisure. But they were wrong. Although in December 1962, Jacqueline Kennedy never sent out any Christmas cards, she certainly received some. More than 800,000 cards and condolence letters poured into the White House that year, telling her how very very sorry they were about the loss of her husband. Part 3. The Hidden Folk During the 1980s, the U.S. Navy and Air Force had more than 3,000 troops and millions of dollars of military equipment stationed in Iceland to watch over Soviet activities in the region. Even though Iceland was a founding member of NATO, it didn't have a military of its own. A majority of Iceland's residents were firmly anti-war in their beliefs. But that wasn't the only thing many of them believed in. On March 23, 1982, 150 protesters boarded three buses bound for Keflavik, Iceland, in order to protest the threat the U.S. military posed to Iceland's other residents, a group known as the Haldafolk, which translates to the Hidden Folk. But there's also another name for these creatures one which we're much more familiar with. Elves. Belief in elves is widespread throughout Iceland. Although these aren't the same tiny creatures we think of making toys in Santa's workshop. The Christmas elf was yet another invention that came out of English holiday stories written during the Victorian era. No, the Haldafolk were supposed to be the same size as adult humans, although they were also invisible to the naked eye. Legends of the Hidden Folk date back at least as far as the time when Vikings first landed on Iceland back around the year 874. Early legends of elves made them out to be harmless pranksters. When something went inexplicably wrong, it became common to blame it on the elves. But over time, some of the legends of the elves would take a darker turn, and stories would begin to emerge that elves could be dangerous. For one thing, it was believed that elves had the ability to invade a sleeping individual's dreams and cause them to have nightmares. In fact, the German word for nightmares is Aldbrücken, which translates in English to elf pressure, 
But not only were elves supposed to be able to cause trouble for you in dreams, they could also do real physical harm as well. Some stories about elves claimed that they would sometimes kidnap mortals and whisk them away to their elven lairs to serve as slaves. In their place, the Haldefolk would leave an exact replica of the person behind to take their place. Except, these replicas would exhibit some major personality changes. I can only imagine this was one way medieval Icelanders would sometimes explain away fits of depression and other mental disorders in people. For the most part, the people of Iceland lived pretty harmoniously with the Hidden Folk. Just as long as they stayed out of each other's way, that is. Back in the 1930s, the government of Iceland wanted to connect the capital city of Kopavagor with Reykjavik. But there was a problem. South of the capital was a massive rock which came to be known as Elf Hole, a term that literally translates to Elf Hill. Massive rocks exactly like this one were believed to be the homes of the elves. This particular rock lay smack dab in the way of the road they wanted to build. And right from the very beginning, it seemed like some unknown force was preventing the project from happening. Carving their way through Alfhole proved to be extremely costly, and funds for the road dried up early on. Later on, a second attempt was made to build the road again, only this time the construction crew experienced a surprising number of equipment malfunctions. Machines broke down constantly, and a lot of tools just plain went missing. Soon, the plan to build the road was abandoned once again. The project lay dormant until the 1980s when plans were once again drawn up to level Alfhole. And just as before, construction crews began to report a large number of mysterious equipment breakdowns, including a couple of very large and very expensive drills that were never supposed to break. In fact, so many strange incidents were reported throughout the worksite that it soon got to the point where spooked members of the construction crew refused to show up for work. When a road between the capital and Reykjavik was finally built, plans were adjusted to swerve around Alfhole. Officially, the Icelandic government refused to say whether the Haldefolk exist or not. Although there was yet another famous incident in which an Icelandic politician paid an unnamed sum of money to move a similar elf rock himself. When word hit the media about Iceland's belief in elves, the Icelandic government was ultimately forced to publicly address the issue. They said, and I quote, Issues have been settled by delaying construction projects so that the elves can, at a certain point, move on. Part 4. The Mistletoe Bride Although in the wake of Dickens' A Christmas Carol there have been plenty of holiday-themed ghost stories published, one particularly famous tale that some people purport to be true is that of The Mistletoe Bride. Variations on this story have appeared in numerous forms, including a few English poems. But the basic facts of the story are as follows. In the early 17th century, a young woman named Anne was scheduled to be married at Bramshill House in Hampshire, England, on Christmas Day. On Christmas Eve, a lavish celebration and feast was thrown in honor of the couple's nuptials. After dinner, the wine flowed freely and everyone was feeling more than a little drunk and giddy. It was Anne who suggested they all blow off some steam by playing a game of hide-and-seek throughout the manor. Since it was her idea, Anne was the first to be it. 
The partygoers gave Anne a five-minute head start before they all set out to look for her. They looked and they looked, but no one was able to find Anne. Everyone got a good laugh out of Anne's excellent disappearing act. But soon people began to realize maybe there was something more to the act than they'd realized. Because Anne never reappeared. As time wore on, Anne's fiancé, Lord Lovell, grew increasingly distraught when he realized his fiancé had vanished without a trace. Days turned to weeks, then to months, then to years, but no sign of Anne was ever found. It was a full fifty years later when Lord Lovell, now elderly and still pining for his lost love, found himself up in the attic of his sprawling mansion poking about. He began tapping on the walls only to discover a hidden panel he hadn't known was there. Inside the panel he found an ornate oak chest. When he flipped open the lid of the chest, Lord Lovell gasped and stumbled backwards. Because there inside the chest lay the skeletal remains of his beloved Anne, still wearing the tattered remains of her wedding dress. The lid of the chest told a horrific story. All across the inside of the lid were violent scratches left behind by Anne's fingernails as she clawed desperately for help. Part 5. The Hatbox Baby This is the story they told the police. It was Christmas Eve 1931. Newlyweds Ed Stewart and his wife Julia were driving through the desert about seven miles west of the mining town Superior, Arizona, not far from the Superstition Mountains. They had taken some cousins up north to see snow, and were on their way back home when their car got a flat tire. Ed pulled over to the side of the road to change the tire while his wife Julia got out and wandered around through the brush and desert. She wandered about a hundred feet away from the road when she began to hear a strange but familiar noise. She discovered a black pasteboard hatbox lying next to a clump of mesquite, and inside the hatbox, she found a tiny red-haired baby girl dressed in flowered pajamas. Once Ed got the car going again, the couple drove the baby to Mesa, where they turned her over to Constable Joe Mayer. From there, the baby girl was handed over to a woman named Helen Ma Dana, a midwife who ran a maternity home on the outskirts of town. Ma Dana estimated the little girl to be around six days old, and other than crying and being hungry, she appeared to be in good health. Seventeen couples applied to adopt the baby, who is now being called Marion. On February 10, 1932, Pinal County Superior Court Judge E.L. Green awarded the baby to a childless couple from Phoenix named Faith and Henry Stieg. After that, the judge ordered the adoption records be sealed. The story of the hatbox baby found on Christmas Eve became national news. It was one of those heartwarming personal interest stories that seemed to capture the collective hearts and imagination of the entire country. For decades after, newspapers would continue to run articles asking the questions of who left the hatbox baby in the desert and whatever happened to her after that. As for the latter question, the answer turned out to be she grew up, got married, and had three kids of her own. For most of her life, a woman named Sharon Elliott didn't know she was adopted, much less that she was the famous Hatbox Baby. In fact, Sharon didn't know anything about the story of the Hatbox Baby at first, 
And although she now knew the truth about her famous infancy, she still didn't know who her parents really were. But there's been plenty of speculation. One possibility that seems fairly obvious is that Sharon Elliott was really Ed and Julia Stewart's child. A lot of people think the couple's story about taking an impromptu drive through the desert on Christmas Eve then just happening to stumble across a baby sounds pretty fishy. Rumors abound that the couple's marriage was actually a shotgun wedding to cover up an illegitimate pregnancy. Something that would have been a major scandal back then. It was Sharon's adoptive mother Faith who broke the news to her that she was a hatbox baby. And there are those who've investigated the case who think there might be something more to Faith's story than she ever let on. Faith and Henry Steig divorced a few years after adopting Sharon. Following the divorce, Faith retained custody of Sharon. The TV show Unsolved Mysteries once featured the case of the Hatbox Baby, which resulted in a newfound interest in the public solving the mystery of Sharon's origin. One interesting wrinkle to the story came when Faith told Sharon that she had given all her adoption papers to a mysterious friend. Later on, after Faith's death, Sharon discovered a handwritten note from her adoptive mother stating that the friend she referenced was actually her biological cousin, Edna Sherman Rowe, and that Edna was actually Sharon's biological mother. According to the note, Edna gave birth to Sharon out of wedlock when she was 15 years old and that Faith had helped cover up the illegitimate pregnancy. Reports state that Edna Rowe died in a plane crash in 1951. It turned out, though, that Edna had a niece living in Tucson. Sharon attempted to contact the woman for DNA testing to prove that Edna was really her biological mother. But the woman refused to get involved, and the mystery of the hatbox baby lives on. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Part 6. The Devils of Christmas The thing you have to understand about Christmas is that a lot of the time-honored traditions many people hold sacred aren't so time-honored after all. Many Christmas traditions like Christmas trees, Christmas stockings, and Christmas carols only date back as far as the 1840s. Not only that, but there are some traditions that would shock people today a lot more than some Starbucks barista wishing them a happy holiday instead of a Merry Christmas. For example, there's one tradition out of South Wales that involves a skeletal horse spirit known as the Marie Lloyd. During this particular Christmas ritual, a group of revelers go door-to-door carrying a real horse skull 
demanding entry through song. The skull is festooned with festive baubles and ribbons, plus a white sheet draped over the person carrying it. Although Marie Lloyd caroling typically takes place around Christmas and New Year's, it's sometimes also done in midsummer or around Halloween. When a Marie Lloyd troop arrives on a person's doorstep, they begin singing a melodic challenge to the person inside. The homeowner is then expected to respond with their own even wittier rhyme. This Victorian rap battle is supposed to go on until the players are finally let inside with the horse skull and given food and drink. The Victorian era produced a lot of rather disturbing ideas about how to greet someone at Christmas. The Christmas card was invented by Henry Cole in 1843, after he grew sick and tired of composing dozens of handwritten letters to his friends and family. Christmas cards have been published ever since, bearing all manner of artwork. But the Victorians took things up a notch by sending out cards bearing the images of dead birds. This, of course, sounds pretty morbid today. But the idea of the dead birds all stem from an ancient good luck ritual during which a wren or a robin was killed in late December. And was also tied to a famous saying about a bird flying through a nobleman's castle, signifying the fleeting nature of life. The Victorians really, really loved Christmas. In many ways, back in Queen Victoria's era, Christmas was actually closer to spring break for its sheer self-destructive attitude. This could really be seen in a Victorian-era parlor game known as Snapdragon. This was a game that was traditionally played on Christmas Eve and involved acts of self-harm that would undoubtedly be a YouTube sensation where it's still performed today. But as they say, don't try this at home. Seriously, don't do it. Players of Snapdragon would sit around a shallow bowl full of raisins, grapes, plums, or other fruit. Then one of the players would douse the fruit in brandy, dim the lights, then set the bowl on fire. After that, players were expected to take turns plunging their hands into the flames in order to grab a raisin. If you managed to get that far, you were then expected to pop the flaming raisin in your mouth and eat it, lighting up your face in the dark like a jack-o'-lantern. It used to be considered a rite of passage to wake up cheerfully on Christmas morning with third-degree burns on your hands and lips. The Bouche de Noël, or Yule Log, is a traditional dessert that hails from France in the 19th century. It's a delicious cake decorated to look like a fallen tree. But in the Catalan region of Spain, there's a long-standing tradition of an entirely different sort of Yule Log. You see, in Catalonia, it's been a tradition since the mid-19th century to depict not just the primary figures in the biblical nativity scene, but all the side characters around town as well. This includes one particularly popular character known as the Caganer. The word Caganer literally translates to the word crapper, which should give you some idea what his deal is. Catalonian tradition involves a game where you're supposed to find the Caganer in the nativity scene. This would seem innocent enough except for the fact that the figure of the Caganer is that of a man squatting with his pants down around his ankles and pooping. The Caganer has been around for more than 200 years and is such a popular figure in the region that every once in a while someone gets the idea to remove the figure from public nativity scenes and each time the backlash is so great that public officials are forced to put him back. There are a lot of strange and disturbing characters associated with Christmas celebrations around the world. 
By now, most of us are probably familiar with Krampus, the German goat-footed demon who's supposed to ride shotgun with Santa, kidnapping naughty children and stuffing them in a sack. But Krampus isn't the only such terrifying holiday creature. Many of the stories surrounding Christmas monsters and demons are all based around a system of rewards for the virtuous and punishments for the wicked. For example, the Germans also have a legend similar to the Krampus about another creepy figure known as the Belschnickel. The Belschnickel eventually made the trip across the ocean with Pennsylvania Dutch immigrants to America. He's typically depicted as a raggedy, beggar-like individual who will show up outside your home around Christmas bearing either cakes or a set of whips for you, depending on how you behaved throughout the previous year. The Germans also have a legend of a Christmas witch known as Frau Perchta, who hands out punishments during the 12 days of Christmas. She's someone you really don't want to get on the bad side of because Frau Perchta will rip out your guts and replace them with garbage if you've been naughty. In Iceland, they have the legend of the 13 Yule Lads, a group of trolls who sound innocent enough on the surface. And in fact, some of them are depicted as simple mischievous pranksters like the suitably named Door Slammer. But then there are others who are a lot creepier like the Spoon Licker or the Window Peeper. But the Yule Lads pale in comparison to a couple other Icelandic Christmas monsters. There's the Yule Lads pet, the Yule Cat, a monstrous feline that devours naughty children. But the one you really want to watch out for is the Yule Lads mom, Gryla. She's a gigantic troll who lives in the mountains and comes down around Christmas time to prey on children. Gryla has multiple sets of eyes in her head and an impressive 13 tails. Gryla likes to toss bad children in a sack and drag them back to her cave in the mountains in order to boil them alive for dinner. Children who live in the Alsace region of France are warned to look out for Hans Trap, another sort of opposite number to Santa. He was supposed to start out his existence as a rich and greedy man who worshipped Satan, and was subsequently excommunicated from the Catholic Church. He was later exiled to the forest where he tried to steal a child and eat him. Except the child was saved at the last moment when God struck the man down with a bolt of lightning. After that, Hans Trapp was cursed to rise from the dead and prey on wicked children around Christmas time. Elsewhere in France is the legend of Père Fautard, whose name translates to the Father Whipper, which in this case isn't a completely accurate description of what he is since he was actually supposed to be a cannibalistic butcher who lured a trio of boys into his shop where he cut them up and ate them. At least in this case, the story has a sort of happy ending, I guess, because St. Nicholas showed up at the man's shop, resurrected the children, and took the evil butcher into custody. But not everything about the story is all mistletoe and candy canes, because after that, St. Nicholas made Père Fautard into his servant whose job from then on was to punish bad little children. The Netherlands have a legend about a character a lot of people have been trying to eliminate from their folklore, known as Zwart Piet. In Dutch tradition, Sinterklaas, or Santa Claus as he's known elsewhere, has his very own slave. As you can surmise, the legend of Zwart Piet is really, really racist. Zwart Piet literally translates to Black Piet, and he often appears in Christmas parades as a white person in blackface. The legend of the character is similar to some of the others I've mentioned in that he rides along with Sinterklaas and punishes bad children. 
He originates from a 19th century children's book about a slave purchased in a Cairo slave market. At least in this case, in recent years, a number of people throughout the Netherlands have begun protesting the character because of how obscenely racist he is. Over time, public pressure has slowly begun to phase out the blackface from Christmas celebrations in the Netherlands. It turns out there are some Christmas traditions that really need to end. Part 7. The Mystery Before Christmas "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. So begins one of the most well-known Christmas stories ever written. Other than Dickens' A Christmas Carol, probably the most famous Christmas story of them all, is the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, otherwise known as The Night Before Christmas. The problem is, although we know a lot about Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, the origin of The Night Before Christmas remains a mystery. When the poem first appeared in New York's Troy Sentinel on December 23, 1823, there was no author's name attached to it. It wouldn't be until 13 years later that Clement Clark Moore, a poet and professor, stepped forward and claimed he had written it. Legend had it that Moore wrote the poem for his children, and that his housekeeper sent the poem into the paper without his knowledge. There was one problem, though. The family of another poet, Henry Livingston Jr., claimed their father had been reciting the poem to their children a full 15 years before it was published in the New York newspaper. And there's evidence to believe Livingston might be telling the truth. Livingston's mother was Dutch, and so are a lot of the references in the poem as well, including the names of Santa's reindeer. In fact, the names Donner and Blitzen appear to be anglicized versions of the words Dunder and Blixum, the Dutch words for thunder and lightning. As many as four of Livingston's children, as well as a neighbor's child, all recalled hearing the poem as early as 1807. Livingston's children even claimed to have possessed a handwritten and dated copy of the poem written by their father as proof. But the house where the letter was being kept burned down before they were ever able to produce it. In recent years, a few literary sleuths have taken up the case, studying the works of both Livingston and Moore, and declared that stylistically the poem is a much closer match to other works by Livingston. Proponents of the belief that Clement Moore wrote the poem point to Moore's close friendship with the author Washington Irving, was famous for his own Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Irving was heavily inspired by Dutch culture, and in his book A History of New York, he made references to a few phrases that sound awfully similar to phrases found in The Night Before Christmas. It's possible Moore's Dutch influence in the poem could have come straight from Washington Irving. But to this day, the mystery of who authored The Night Before Christmas remains a question of one family's word against another. Part 8. The Star Picture this. Three men, all regally attired in robes, riding on camels across the desert. They bob up and down against the night sky as they climb dune after dune. It's a particularly dark night, but they continue to head toward one brilliant object in the sky. A silvery ball of light that shines like a beacon over the tiny village of Bethlehem. This is the image most of us have of the Christmas star. It's an image that's been indelibly sealed in our collective conscious by countless religious paintings, greeting cards, and nativity scenes all across the world 
and throughout history. In truth, the story of the three wise men is a little more complicated than that. In fact, the star of Bethlehem is only mentioned once in the Bible. That comes from the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. And it's one particular passage that may give us some clues to the star's origins. In Matthew 2.9 it says, When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now, if we're to take this passage literally, then this obviously wasn't any normal star, since stars don't behave that way. There are some who believe that the star of Bethlehem may not have been a star at all, but rather a different sort of aerial phenomena. No, I'm not talking about UFOs, though I'm pretty sure the show Ancient Aliens has put forth this theory, so I'll leave it right there where it belongs. If we take the story from the Bible literally, there are several other celestial objects that could have been observed in the night sky. But before we get there, we first have to dispel a few myths. For one thing, let's get this straight. December 25th was certainly not the birthday of Jesus Christ. In fact, the entire numbering system of his birth is probably off by at least four years because of a literal clerical error put down by a church cleric. According to many religious scholars and historians, the birth of Christ likely came no later than 4 BC, and maybe even earlier than that. The Bible doesn't actually say what the actual date was, but based on clues such as references to the shepherds being out in their fields to watch over their flocks at night, we can thus deduce that the birth likely occurred sometime in the spring between the years of 7 and 4 BC. You see, it gets awfully cold in the desert in December, so it's pretty unlikely a shepherd would have been out there any earlier than spring. In fact, the first mention of December 25th being Christ's birthday doesn't turn up in the historical record until the year 354 CE in a Roman calendar. I could also point out that there are a number of people who think that the entire story of Jesus' origins are lifted wholesale from the ancient Persian religion of Mithraism. But that's a rabbit hole I'd rather save for another day. In regards to the Christian version of events, the problem with the historical record is that few astronomical records were kept back then except by the Chinese and Koreans. They recorded what appeared to be a handful of comets in the night skies around 4 or 5 BC, any of which might have been the legendary star over Bethlehem. One major problem with the Christmas star being a comet, though, is that such a fast-moving light in the sky likely would have been considered a bad omen and probably would have driven the three wise men in the opposite direction. Another possibility is that the star was a supernova. Indeed, one such nova was recorded by Chinese astronomers in the spring of 5 BC, and likely would have been visible in the night sky for as long as two months. However, its position in the constellation Capricornus again would have pointed the wise men in the wrong direction described in the Bible. Other possibilities for the Christmas star was that it was really a planet, or perhaps even the conjunction in the night sky of a trio of planets, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. Around 5 and 6 BC, the three planets would have been in such an alignment that they would have appeared to make one bright mass in the sky, which may also explain the descriptions of the star of Bethlehem's peculiar movements. All these possible scientific explanations make sense to some degree, but then again, they all have some serious issues as well. The truth is, there isn't any one scientific explanation that fits everything described in the Bible, 
or any other historical record for that matter. And maybe that's for the best. Perhaps it's best for us to simply look at the Star of Bethlehem as a symbol, as it's originally described. A peace on earth and goodwill to all. Perhaps some mysteries just aren't meant to be solved. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I really enjoyed sharing these short stories with you. If you like this format for the show, drop me a line on our Facebook page, Twitter, or via email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com, and maybe I'll do it again sometime. I also want to thank my friend Rob Christofferson for lending his voice to my story of the two astronauts. Rob does a fantastic podcast called Our Strange Skies that delves into the mysteries and history of the UFO phenomenon. If you're as interested as I am in all things alien-related, then you really need to check out Our Strange Skies. Just a reminder, we have a Patreon page where patrons of the show can pledge their support and help us out bringing new content to you on a regular schedule. I want to give a special shout-out to my latest Patreon supporters, Jessica and Stephen. Thank you so much. You're both very much on my nice list this year. If you're interested in helping support the show, I'll put a link to our Patreon page in the show notes. Patrons get access to all sorts of rewards like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and of course our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. Another way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your reviews helps boost us in Apple's rankings and helps spread the good word about the conspirators. To all my listeners, I just want to give one more big thanks for all the love and support you've given me and the show. When I started this podcast a couple years ago, I never had any idea it would grow as huge as it has for me. And I couldn't have done it without each and every one of you. So if you're listening to this episode on the day of release, I wanted to wish each and every one of you a happy holiday, a Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year. <laughs>